Hello and welcome to the 6th edition of Victor's Corner. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, one-fourth of the Codex Prime podcast, and it is Thursday, April 14, 2016, and I am so glad to be back here once again, and I thank you for tuning in for this new episode we have this week. Uh, Before we get into the proceedings here, I want to give two shout-outs real quick at the top of the program. Uh, The first shout-out goes to friend of the show, Reza Clifton, a.k.a. Reza Rush. She is the co-host of the awesome Sonic Watermelons radio show, which you can listen to on BSRlive.com every Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you're a fan of great music and awesome conversation, then by all means, do yourself a favor and check out her show, Sonic Watermelons. Awesome stuff. And the second shout-out goes to the University of Rhode Island's Alumni of Color Network. Uh, Last Thursday on April 7th, they hosted their 10th annual Alumni of Color panel, in which they featured a panel of remarkable alumni from years past sharing their experiences as students, graduates, and their experiences and challenges and unique stories in the workforce in their respective careers. It was a very instructive and very informative and very insightful uh, uh, presentation, and the panel just had just plenty of awesome stories to tell and some great advice for not only the soon-to-be graduates of the class of 2016 at URI, but also for the rest of us uh, fellow alums as well, who, you know, we face our own struggles and challenges out there in the uh, career or working worlds. And it's very inspirational, I should say, to to see other other alumni, you know, share their experiences. And I also reflect on mine as well. And and it's great to see to, to gain some inspiration from that too. So it was just a remarkable event and uh, I thank the Alumni of Color Network for hosting it. And it's just plenty it's just great stuff all around. So big ups to the ACN panel from the University of Rhode Island. All right, now we got a couple of film reviews on tap here that I want to get into for you all. And first of which is Jeff Nichols' fourth feature film called Midnight Special, which is a sci-fi slash road trip slash family drama thriller, which stars Michael Shannon, Joel Edgerton, Kirsten Dunst, Adam Driver, and Jaden Lieberher. And this film was written and directed by Jeff Nichols, who happens to have written and directed two very interesting and remarkable films in recent years. Uh, First of which I saw was called Take Shelter back in 2011, which also stars Michael Shannon and Jessica Chastain, as well as his 2013 feature Mud, starring Matthew McConaughey in one of his best roles, along with Reese Witherspoon and Ty Sheridan. Now, I haven't seen Nichols' 2007 debut feature called Shotgun Stories, but that's one film that I've always had on my queue, and I hope to see that film at some point soon. And so now we have Midnight Special, which is his uh, fourth feature film, and the story of the film sees a father and son going on the run, and they're being pursued by the government and a religious cult, which happens to be drawn to this child's special powers. Now, Michael Shannon plays a character named Roy, who happens to be the father of this eight-year-old boy named Alton, who happens to be manifesting these otherworldly powers in which beams of light emit from his eyes and, 
you know, this energy. He exude. He literally exudes this energy from his body, and it's just an otherworldly sight to see. And you're wondering just what this boy's nature is, and why the FBI and this cult are after him. You know, you know, is he is he really human? Is he a mutant? Is he an alien? Is he an angel, demon? What you know? You don't know exactly what this boy's nature is, and that's one of the questions that actually, you know, grips you from the moment the film starts. And uh, Mike and Michael Shannon uh, plays plays Roy, the boy's father, and uh, he's also being uh, helped by his best friend named Lucas, played by Joel Edgerton, who happens to be uh, escort helping them, you know, escape and evade the authorities along the way. And they're actually uh, driving towards some unknown destination, which. For which they have to get Alton to, you know, at a critical point before his powers, you know, manifest even more. And who knows what will happen if that does happen. And, you know, the beginning of the film, I will say, is quite gripping and it holds a lot of promise as to what's to come. Uh, the opening of the film sees Roy, Lucas, and Alden, you know, Alton, they're preparing to leave this motel at the crack of dusk. And this Amber Alert is actually being broadcast on TV, you know, basically saying that, you know, this eight-year-old boy, Alton, is kidnapped by Roy. They actually mentioned them by name. Naturally, with the Amber Alert, Roy has to, you know, find a way to evade the authorities as much as he can, and Lucas is there to help them. So the beginning of the film sees them leaving this motel, and this receptionist happens to catch their car, and so she calls the, calls the police. And the next shot sees... You know, Lucas driving Roy and Alton down this dark, dark rural road. And in the dead of night, he cuts off the headlights and he puts on his night vision goggles so he can continue seeing in the darkness while keeping their car concealed from the police. And from there, you're wondering, wow, man, this is this is pretty this is pretty intense stuff. You know, where where are these characters going and what purpose, you know, do they have for, you know, keeping the keeping the sun this, this child with them and what's going to happen. And there's also a, another early sequence in the film which sees this religious cult be, you know, being uh, uh, questioned by the FBI. And this religious cult is led by uh, this, this, uh, this preacher figure played by Sam Shepard, uh, who makes an all-too-brief appearance in the film. And he's this leader of this mysterious religious cult that's uh, sheltered Roy and Alton. And as he's watching this Amber Alert being broadcast, he actually sends two of his members, these two menacing-looking figures in, uh, in suits, to track down this father and son. And the cult actually claims that Alton has this special gift, which we do see bits of as Alton, you know, emits beams of lights from his eyes and all this. And the government, the FBI in particular, uh, they happen to be concerned as Alton starts uttering out random numbers, which turn out to be these classified coordinates of some kind. And so the gov government is tracking them down. And so you're wondering, you know, will the FBI capture this boy? You know, what do they want with him? What, where exactly are Roy, Lucas, and Alton going? And what will happen once they reach their destination? And all of this sounds really exciting and really intriguing. And it has a lot of promise. But with all that said, unfortunately, none of it exactly pans out in this film, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to say because, unfortunately, Midnight Special fails, in my view, to live up to its own expectations it sets up for the audience. You know, which is a shame because it has so much promise in its premise, but 
it presents all of these questions and fails to answer them in any satisfying or conclusive or meaningful way. So as you're watching the film, you know, it's, it becomes apparent that it has no interest whatsoever in answering in any satisfying way the mysteries it presents to you, you know, like the like Alton's powers and his true nature, what he really is, uh, what he's truly capable of, and why, uh, what the cult and the government want with him, uh, what Roy, Lucas, and uh, Kirsten Dunst's character Sarah, what they hope, what they hope to find at the end of Alton's journey. And as well as the ultimate reveal and the film's climax, which I won't get into for, you know, to avoid spoilers. I will say that one of the biggest missteps that really held this film back for me was that the fact that the characters, the main characters of Roy, Alton, and Sarah don't have any real character arcs to them. You know, there's no change or evolution in their goals or motivations throughout the film beyond getting to wherever they're going to and protecting their son. So from from the first frame that you see in the film, you know, Roy's motivations and his feelings and, you know, his outlook on the whole situation, as well as Alton and, you know, Kirsten Dunst's character remains the same from the moment you see them. There's no real evolution. There's no real swerves or any twists or any real development to to their situation, well, to how they perceive their situation and how they go about it. What you see is what you get, and there's really, there's no real arc. They're very static characters, and you don't know much about them beyond their immediate motivations of protecting their child, which is a shame because, you know, you have a very, you know, sterling cast here in Michael Shannon and, and Dunst and, and Edgerton, and, you know, with, with Shannon in particular, you know, he's all furrowed brows and serious glum expressions and not much else. You know, yes, yes, we get it. He, he He's awed by his own son and he wants to protect him any way he can, like any father would. But give us more. What's he really thinking about? How does he really feel about the situation? What changes does he go through? The film gives none of that. I will say, though, that the most interesting character in the film, however, happens to be Joel Edgerton's character, Lucas, who happens to be Roy's best friend. And uh, what's interesting about Lucas is that, you know, he's he's helping out Roy and Alton simply because, you know, he's Roy's best friend and because for him, it's, it's what he does. It's the right thing to do. You know, his friend is in trouble, his friend is in need, and he's there to help him out any way he can. And... For Lucas, I can clear. I, there, I can see that there's an arc for him, you know, such as it is where, in the beginning, you know, he's, yeah, he's he he does share some amazement of Alton's abilities, but he doesn't view him as the second coming or you know this messiah type figure. You know, he just sees a young boy, and his and his father, and they need his help, and he's like, hey man, I got your back. I'll, I'll do what I can, and. And throughout the film, you kind of see, you know, his his evolution and how he feels about about the situation. And for him, at least there is some payoff with his character there. And for Lucas, you know, he was definitely the most interesting uh, character in the whole film. And I wish I only wish that Shannon's character, you know, and Alton and Dunst followed suit. Uh, to a smaller extent, uh, you have the char Adam Driver's character, this uh, NSA or FBI uh, agent uh, named Paul, who happens to take an interest in in the boy and uh, and his abilities. 
and you're wondering, you know, is he just a typical, you know, nebbish government uh, agent type who has a ulterior motive or has some sort of nefarious purpose, you know, for seeking the boy out and to exploit his powers. You don't really know. But as you watch the film, you kind of see where his character goes. And, you know, there's some there's a small degree of satisfaction in seeing how his character evolves as well. Now, in regards to the overall narrative, I actually read a couple of reviews about the film, and some of the reviews that I've read have actually interpreted Midnight Special as a metaphor of the fears of parenting. You know, that the journey of the main characters functions as director-writer Jeff Nichols, you know, working out his own apprehensions and worries of being a new father. You know, that taking care of a child and eventually having to relinquish that child to the world so that they can grow further and, you know, make something of themselves is something that every parent has to eventually contend with and that the journey of the characters in the film represents that struggle. However, you know, to me, this does not hold water because the film takes its time to set up these questions surrounding this big mystery of Alton, as well as the agendas of the FBI and the cult, and then it doesn't bother to resolve them in any meaningful way. You know, it's sort of like the problem with that TV series Lost, which I used to be a fan of, in which so many of the, these mysteries are set up throughout the show, and then it turns out that most of those mysteries weren't really important at all. Most of them were red herrings. And then when the fame, when then when then that famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, of series finale arrived, you had the creators of the show and others basically state that, well, you know, Lost, it really wasn't about the mysteries and the questions, it was all about the characters, you know? So, shut up, why are you complaining? If you have a mystery story, a mystery narrative, and then it turns out that, that most of the clues and most of the questions weren't really relevant, and then you turn around and say, well, you know what? It's about the journey, it's about the experience, it's about the characters. That's just a cop-out, dude. And in regards to Midnight Special, that whole that whole notion of, you know, it's not about the mystery, it's about the character's explanation, that might hold some weight if the main characters weren't complete ciphers. You know, if they actually had some development to them apart from Lucas. But again, they don't. Like I said, you know, Midnight Special is a film that has loads of promise, but in the final analysis... You know, it's lack of satisfying payoff and confusion of the difference between ambiguity and vagueness proved irksome to me. With all that said, though, I will say that it's a film that's worth a rental. I would not go out of you. I would not go out of my. Uh, if if I were you, I would I wouldn't go out of my way to see it in theaters like I did. But if it, you know, if you find it at Redbox or Netflix or wherever, you know, give it a rental, and who knows, you might gain more you know, enjoyment from the film than I did, or more satisfaction. But as for me, I will say that this is Jeff Nichols' first misstep, which, hey, you know what happens to to the best of filmmakers. So although I really can't recommend Midnight Special, I'm still looking forward to his other film, which is coming out later this year. And uh, his film, his next film, which is slated to come out in November, is called Loving. And that film tells the true story of the interracial marriage between uh, Mildred and Richard Loving, which led to the landmark Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court case of 1967, which uh, put an end to uh, 
laws prohibiting interracial marriage in the U.S. And that film will also star Joel Edgerton as well as Ruth Naga. So that film sounds very, very promising. And that's a film that I am looking forward to. So again, you know, Midnight Special, you know, a, a, a misstep in Jeff Nichols' catalog, but again, it does have enough good ideas that if you are curious about seeing it still, check it out. And if you do see it, let me know what you think. And uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on the film. All right, moving on now. Let's talk about the other film that I managed to see this past week. And my oh my, what a film it is. What words do I choose to describe this film and which we're about to get into? Uh, the second film that I saw was called Hardcore Henry. And the story synopsis from IMDb states that Hardcore Henry is a first-person action film from the eyes of Henry, who's resurrected from death with no memory. He must discover his identity and save his wife from a warlord with a plan to bioengineer soldiers. That's all you need to know, folks. That's the whole story right there. This is a 96-minute film, which is just batshit insane cinema. I mean, good God. This film, Hardcore Henry, lives in the same block as both Crank movies. Crank, and especially Crank 2 High Voltage, which is dumb as fuck, mind you. But it's a dumb-as-fuck movie that I enjoy and wholeheartedly recommend. And Aris would say the same thing. Uh, Hardcore Henry is also in the same crazy, over-the-top neighborhood as Kung Fury. And to a lesser extent, both Raid films, which are just exemplary examples of action films right there. I will say that Hardcore Henry is so crazy that it makes all of the Fast and Furious movies look positively sedate by comparison. I mean, as ridiculous as the Fast and Furious movies are, with Hardcore Henry, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because this, and like I said, this is actually all shot entirely from a first-person perspective. Uh, the, the filmmaker Ilya Nyshuler and uh, his team, they actually used GoPro Hero 3 cameras, which were, which were, you know, which the stuntmen wore to, you know, portray, you know, Henry's uh, first-person perspective. So we see everything, all the action, all of the scenes, all of the ridiculous, outlandish, over-the-top insanity and violence comes directly from Henry's perspective, and the film does not break from it at all, not once. So from start to finish, you see his perspective, and it's just like, it's very much a first-person action shooter adventure film. So this is a this is like a video game movie in its purest form. It's not an adaptation of any of any, you know, long established video game because by then it would be crap because as we know, film adaptations of video games have a terrible track record and you know, Hardcore Henry manages to sidestep that by by telling its own, you know, original story using video game tropes and conventions to to fantastic and very entertaining effect. Uh, 
I will say that a precursor to Hardcore Henry, if you're curious, and I've included a link in the description below, is a uh, is a music video which came out in 2013 by this Russian uh, group called Biting Elbows, and their video is called Bad Motherfucker. And that short video actually is also shot entirely from the first-person view of a protagonist who fights his way through Russia. And that 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 music video will give you a complete idea of what Hardcore Henry's style is. And Hardcore Henry is just a rollicking action film from start to finish. In fact, it's so violent that the opening credits of the film, which features, you know, all manner of ways in which somebody's, you know, being violently bludgeoned, you know, shot, stabbed, having brickstone at their craniums. The opening credits tell you everything you need to know about this film. You're either all in at that point or you or, or you should just get the hell up out of the theater. Because the there's no in-between here. There's no ambiguity. You're either all in for Hardcore Henry or you are not. You better go see something else, pal, if this is not your thing. And I gotta say, man, this film, the, the action, the choreography, the inventiveness, and especially the editing of the film was just, rem was just incredibly done. I will say that the, the film's 96-minute runtime, none of the action really feels repetitive, even because, like I said, it's entirely from the first-person perspective. For, so for that length of time, you might, you might get the impression that the film might be spinning its wheels or the gimmick might wear thin. And that was a big concern of mine going into this film. But thankfully, that's not the case at all because the film actually has you know ideal pacing. It's paced very much like a shooter video game where each scene or each location is a stage there's a, there's a certain mini boss which is a little too powerful for a protagonist but he manages to pull through anyway and throughout the film you see Charlton copley's character this guy named jimmy and he's playing many versions of this same character so everywhere hardcore henry goes he sees jimmy you know donning various forms and disguises and the film provides a an explanation for that which i won't spoil at all I will say that if you're, if you're coming into this film looking for a deep dish storyline, if you're looking for well-rounded, full-bodied characters or, you know, meaningful, thoughtful themes or, you know, messages or whatever, you are approaching this film completely wrong because from the word go, it is clear as day that hardcore henry is not about that this film is strictly about thrills it's strictly about action it is lovingly made for the popcorn munching mouth breathing self-pleasuring simple moviegoers of the world in other words this is a movie lovingly handcrafted for the carl birds for the aristahedas and the maurice cerulos and the fam squads of the world and you know what i 100 percent approve because Good God, what a film this is. <laughs> um, it's, it, I, I gotta say, like, it's, it's a gimmicky film. And I will say that if there's any flaws to the film, besides the aforementioned, you know, lack of characterization and, and, and story and all this, is uh, I will say that the climactic action scene, like the final major action scene, which I won't really uh, get into uh, describing, I will say that there's so much action in that particular scene, so much waves and waves of carnage and violence and bodies and blood and bullets and fists coming at your face that you just feel numb. 
like at least for me I did, I just sat there and had this impassive look, this impassive gaze on my face as I saw all this waves and waves, you know, hitting me. And at that point I was like, okay, I think this film definitely broke through its breaking point. But, you know, like I said, that happens at the film's climax, so the film actually manages to end at just the right note without it feeling too overbearing. And also, in addition to the awesome stunt work that you see in the film, uh, from the uh, amazing parkour sequences to the fist fights to the gunplay, um, special attention has to be brought to the film's, you know, seamless blend of visual and practical effects. You know, many of the uh, effects were done in camera, uh, from what I've seen, and of course, there's some, there's a good amount of CGI, and also the editing. Is, is fantastic because the film makes effective use of elliptical editing where you know there are certain cuts or glitches in Hen in Henry's vision so as he's walking or traveling from one place to another uh, there might the film might actually like cut or glitch a little uh, to kind of um, fast forward his progress so you don't see every single step of his journey because then the film would be much longer than 96 minutes so you know kudos to the editing uh, of the film, which was done by Steve Merkovich. And also too, Hardcore Henry, another thing that I really liked about the film was that it made an effective use of one uh, common video game convention or trope, if you will, which was the use of the silent protagonist. And Henry in the film is a silent protagonist. We do not hear him utter one single word throughout the film. So that's an effective way of sort of putting yourself in Henry's shoes. And uh, that also kind of reminded me of um, Half-Life and Half-Life 2, both both uh, games, both first-person shooter games, which uh, make use of a, the, of a silent protagonist, Gordon Freeman. And you know what? That got me thinking. You know what? Since it's been 12 years, wow, I can't believe I just said that, 12 years since Half-Life 2, which came out in 2004, at this point, as, as video gamers, we all know that Half-Life 3 will never come to fruition. So why not make Half-Life 3 in the form of a feature film done in the first-person style of Hardcore Henry? Perhaps less kinetic, mind you, because, you know, Half-Life 3 has an actual substantive story to be told. <laughs> you know, let's not kid ourselves here, but... Definitely something in the in the vein of Hardcore Henry where you, you use some first-person cinematography and keep Gordon Freeman silent and make some clever use of that as he interacts with his environment. And I think a Half-Life 3 feature film in that style would be really effective if you, if you hired the right filmmaker and the right writers. Hey, man, that would be a, a true sight to see. And that would be one video game based film that I could definitely get behind with no reservations. But getting back to Hardcore Henry for a bit, the because of the fact that Henry is a silent protagonist, there is no one single actor that actually played the title character. In fact, uh, the director actually managed to use about 10 stuntmen to portray Henry's actions, which I think is a pretty uh, effective way of bringing the story forward. Because if you only have one single actor to play this role, there would be, you know, a high risk of injury, 
you know, considering the the types of stunts that we see in the film. So using stunt stuntmen to portray this character was a wise and very creative and effective move. So, you know, props to the stunt team that helped to bring that role to life as we've seen it. And also, if you're curious about any other films that use the first-person perspective to unique effect, then I'd like to bring your attention to a few films that actually have pioneered, you know, first-person filmmaking beforehand. Albeit they're not, they're nowhere near as kinetic or ridiculous as Hardcore Henry, mind you. But these are these are just some uh, films that you should check out if you if you have the time. Uh, one film is this film noir from 1947 called Lady in the Lake, which uh, was uh, directed by Robert Montgomery. And that film is a film noir which takes place, you know, entirely from the first person view of the main character. And that's a very interesting film to check out. Another film is uh, Russian Ark which came out in 2002, directed by Alexander Sukurov. And that film is uh, is a little over 90 minutes, and that entire film is just one 90-minute take with no edits whatsoever, and that's just remarkable in and of itself. So if you're in a mood for an ama a visually amazing film to witness, then check out Russian Ark. And also another film that uses, that makes... A uh, tremendous use of the first-person perspective is the 2007 uh, Julian Schnabel-directed drama The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, uh, featuring a cinematography by the great Janusz Kaminski. And that about does it for this week's episode of Victor's Corner. And once again, I thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, you can also email the show at codexprimepodcast at gmail.com and be sure to type in Victor in the subject line for your email to be read in the next episode of Victor's Corner. You can also find us Codex Prime peeps on SoundCloud and iTunes, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and select episodes will be posted on YouTube. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Victor Omoyo, and I will see you when I see you. Peace out. Take care. <laughs>